0: Welcome to the Quad Pod, the Regis University Magazine podcast. In this episode, we share stories from our latest issue, Fall and Winter 2020. You'll hear our cover story, The Sacrifice of Walter Springs, and these stories. How a Regis student is smoothing the path for other first-generation students. The history of Regis school songs. An inspirational story of a Regis graduate who completed her degree while battling cancer, and a hurricane. How national championship winning University of Kentucky basketball coach Joe B. Hall built a Hall of Fame career on a Regis foundation. And we'll end with words of wisdom from our favorite fox, Reggie, the Regis mascot. The sacrifice of Walter Springs. He was inspired to change a world burdened by racism. Now Regis honors his legacy. Story written and read by Karen Auger. To see photographs of Walter and his time at Regis, as well as photos from all the stories you'll hear on this podcast, log on to regis.edu slash magazine, where you can view the entire Regis University magazine online. In 1941, it would have been hard to find anyone on the Regis College
1: campus who didn't admire Walter Springs. Known for his kindness and sense of humor, Springs was also one of the state's top boxers. At 5'7", 160 pounds, he excelled as a starting fullback. Reed still had a football team then. Inspired by the teachings of his Jesuit professors, he converted to Catholicism, was baptized on campus, and was known to lead teammates in prayer before games. And he did all that while working two jobs to pay for his education. In his junior year, his classmates voted Springs, the only black man among the 200 young men enrolled at Regis, most popular student. Just a few months later, Springs left college to serve his country in a segregated army. Like many young men who left home to fight in World War II, he never came back. But Walter Springs didn't die on a foreign battlefield. He never made it out of the country. Just after midnight on December 17, 1942, Sergeant Walter Springs was shot and killed by a white military police officer in a Bastrop, Texas cafe, a few miles from the Army base where he was about to report for officer training. At least one news account noted that the mortally wounded soldier lived only long enough to receive last rites. Beyond that, there was little agreement about what exactly happened that night that left Walter Springs bleeding to death on a diner floor. Now, 78 years later, His family is still waiting to learn what happened and why, and whether there was ever justice for him. In this moment, when the country is confronting the persistence of racial injustice, both past and present, the Springs family asks that the sacrifice of a young black man who volunteered to fight for his country not be forgotten. This spring, Regis University's renowned Center for the Study of War Experience will help make sure Springs' story is remembered. His life and his death are the inspiration for a new course, stories from wartime, histories of African-American citizenship, and service. From faith and football to service. Walter Springs grew up in Denver, one of 11 children born to William and Willa May Springs. His father came to Colorado to strike it rich, said William Springs' grandson and Walter's nephew, Orville Springs, He ran away from home at 15, Orville Springs said of his grandfather. He was involved in one of the largest gold strikes in Colorado. He worked for General William Jackson Palmer in Colorado Springs. By the time Walter was born, in 1918, William and Willa May and their family had moved to Denver, and William had traded in his pickaxe and gold pan for a janitor's broom and, according to the Denver City Directory, to clean Pullman coaches and the offices of the Denver Post. Later, Orville Springs said, William Springs became a teamster, possibly Denver's first black teamster. In 1939, Walter Springs graduated from Denver's Manual High School and set about becoming the first in his family to earn a college degree. Even in 1940, when Regis' tuition was $150, plus about $30 in fees, the salary of a janitor or truck driver would hardly have been enough to cover the cost of higher education. And, by 1940, William Springs was retired and Willa May had passed away. But Walter Springs was determined. He got a partial scholarship and a series of part-time jobs, and while he didn't live on the Regis campus, he made his mark there. In May 1941, the Denver Catholic Register reported, As a member of the college boxing team this winter, Walt Springs scored sensational victories over opponents from Colorado College and Wyoming University and was considered the ace of the Ranger squad. The publication also sang his gridiron and spiritual praises. Just before the Spearfish game, he led the entire squad in prayer before Our Lady's Grotto on the Regis campus. The result was that the inspired Rangers ran up the largest score in their modern football history. Spring's friend and mentor, Reverend Joseph P. Donnelly, S.J., a Regis history professor, later recalled that during a trip to an away game, a hotel manager objected to putting a black man up for the night. His teammates came to Springs defense and were about to tear the place apart. Walter Springs stopped them. Months later, as the United States entered World War II, Springs volunteered to join the army. He was sent to Fort McClellan in Anniston, Alabama, where he became one of what would ultimately be half a million men trained there to fight the Axis powers. By the time his training ended, Springs had been promoted to technical sergeant and recommended for officer training with the Army Air Corps at Camp Swift, Texas. In December 1942, Walter Springs came home on furlough and saw his family for what would be the last time. At home, he met his new nephew, Orville, and a family member took a snapshot of the young man standing military straight and looking proud in front of Bill's Diner on Welton Street, which Orville Springs said a family member co-owned. Then, Walter Springs left Denver on a train headed to Camp Swift. He never got there. A fight on two fronts. Camp Swift lived up to its name. In the months after the December 7, 1941, Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the nation united behind leaders who galvanized human, industrial, and military resources into action to fight a common enemy, German and Japanese forces. US bases popped up like dandelions, primarily across the south and west, where military leaders figured mild climate would lend itself to year round training. One of those bases was Camp Swift near Bastrop, Texas, a farming community about thirty miles outside Austin. Lieutenant Colonel Philip A. Cost is now Camp Swift's officer in charge. He's also a self described history buff. According to Cost, quote, On Christmas Eve, 1941, LBJ, who was serving in the Navy, called the town to let them know that Bastrop had been selected as the site of an Army installation. At the time, future President Lyndon Johnson was a Texas congressman. He had been in the Navy Reserve but was called into active duty after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Quote, in January and February, contracts were let, and by May 4, 1942, they had the official flag-raising, Cost said. In four months, they basically built an entire city on some 50,000 acres. By war's end, 10,000 soldiers had come through Camp Swift. A fair number of those soldiers were black, enough that separate facilities, barracks, a mess hall, training grounds, even a canteen for socializing, were built for blacks and whites. Like many of the more than one million young black men who served in World War II, Walter Springs likely hoped that serving his country would not only demonstrate patriotism, but prove that blacks were capable of serving honorably and deserved respect and equality. He told me that he wanted to get into this war for he hoped that he would aid in the elimination of race prejudice, Donnelly wrote in an article that first appeared in the Interracial Review, a publication of the National Catholic Federation for the Promotion of Better Race Relations. A version of the article appeared in the Regis Roundup campus publication in 1952 with the announcement of a scholarship in Springs' memory. Springs wasn't the only one harboring that hope. The Pittsburgh Courier, a leading black newspaper at the time, is widely credited with launching the Double V, or Double Victory, campaign, urging black Americans to link the fight against fascism overseas to the fight against racism at home. In a February 14, 1942 article, Courier editors wrote, "'We as colored Americans are determined "'to protect our country. "'Therefore, we have adopted the Double V war cry, "'victory over our enemies at home "'and victory over our enemies on the battlefields abroad. Thus, in our fight for freedom, we wage a two-pronged attack against our enslavers at home and those abroad who would enslave us. We have a stake in this fight. We are Americans, too. But like many black soldiers from the West and the North, Springs may not have been prepared for the blatant racism and open hostility of the Jim Crow South, where many reported for training. Springs apparently experienced that in Alabama. In his Interracial Review article, Donnelly wrote that Springs came to visit him while he was home on furlough that December. We had a long talk while he was home. I found him no longer witty and sunny. He was worried. Incidents had happened, none too pleasant. He tried to avoid difficulties by keeping to camp and out of the way of whites. He hoped that nothing serious would happen, but it did, and Walter was the victim. Fatal Confrontation. On December 17th, Walter Springs was on a train headed to his new assignment at Camp Swift. In the Bastrop newspaper that day, a front-page story brought news of the sinking of a Japanese ship. Closer to home, a Dallas judge reportedly was considering allowing women to serve on juries because the war had drained the pool of male jurors. The paper was full of news of local holiday gatherings, a local market offered steak at 39 cents a pound, and a seven-foot Christmas tree cost five. When Springs got off the train in Bastrop, he apparently didn't head straight for Camp Swift but stopped in town at Jackson's Cafe, which news accounts called a, quote, Negro Cafe, unquote. Some reports say the trouble started when military police entered the cafe and demanded the soldiers line up for inspection, and Springs resisted. The military police officer, who later was charged with manslaughter, claimed he shot Springs because he, quote, came at him, unquote, with a knife. Nephew Orville Springs noted that the MP accused of shooting his uncle was a corporal while Walter Springs was a sergeant. Maybe he didn't like being outranked by a black man, Orville Springs suggested. News accounts uniformly stated that Walter Springs was shot in the back. Whether that MP was convicted or even tried, not even Walter Springs' family knows, Orville Springs said. Rose Campbell, associate director of the Regis Center for the Study of War Experience, hopes the U.S. military and the National Archives will provide answers about the outcome of the case in time for the upcoming spring semester course that will include Walter Springs. Two days before Christmas, 1942, soldiers bore a flag-draped coffin, holding the body of Technical Sergeant Walter V. Springs into a chapel where his father, brothers, and sisters joined numerous classmates, instructors, and Regis's president to say goodbye to the first Regis student to die in World War II. In his article, written the day of the funeral, Donnelly didn't come out and say, exactly, that he couldn't reconcile the MP's account of Springs coming at him with a knife with the young man he knew, but he made his feelings clear I taught him that Catholic principles, if honestly lived, would solve the problems which face the world and in which he would live. Well, Walter lived those principles. Maybe he was a martyr to them. The following fall, William Springs requested and received a veteran's headstone from the War Department. It now stands over Walter Springs' grave in Denver's Riverside Cemetery, where more than 1,000 veterans rest today. Inscribed on the tombstone are the words, His life and ideal, his memory and inspiration. Bloodshed beyond the battlefield. Whatever happened to Walter Springs, the death of a black soldier on U.S. soil was not an isolated incident. Lauren Hirschberg, PhD, assistant professor of history at Regis, said that the concept of equality for blacks was unthinkable to many, and the idea that a black man could be worthy of respect was frightening. It upended the racist notions of white superiority that were the foundation of racial repression and segregation. Racial tensions erupted in violence around military installations. Among the most notorious and controversial, the Lee Street Riot occurred in Alexandria, Louisiana. In 1942, on a Saturday night, a white military police officer either arrested or attacked a black soldier from nearby Camp Claiborne. Military and state police reported that a riot broke out and officers used force to stop it, injuring several dozen black soldiers. Blacks who were present, however, stated that police opened fire on the crowd. Today, it's widely believed that between 20 and 300 black soldiers and civilians were killed. In October 2020, a University of Southern Mississippi professor convened a discussion to explore whether a mass grave of Lee Street riot victims exists. At the war's end, many black soldiers returned from foreign battlefields to violence at home. One of the trends then was white supremacists seeing African American servicemen coming home, seeing them in uniform, and the sort of threat that seemed to pose to them would result in race riots and violence, Hirschberg said. Violence is exactly what Isaac Woodard experienced before he ever made it home from fighting in the Pacific. On February 12, 1946, Woodard and several other soldiers, black and white, boarded a bus to take them from Camp Gordon in Georgia, where they had received an honorable discharge. Along the way, Woodard and the white bus driver clashed over a bathroom stop. When the bus next stopped, Batesburg, South Carolina police boarded forcibly removed Woodard, who was in his army uniform, arrested him for drunken and disorderly conduct, and beat him so savagely that he was left permanently blind. Word of such incidents reached the desk of President Harry Truman, who reportedly told a friend that his stomach turned upon hearing about them. The case and others liked it marked a turning point in the military's treatment of minorities. Truman's outrage prompted him to establish the first Presidential Commission on Civil Rights, and his Justice Department filed federal criminal charges against the Batesburg police chief, Linwood Scholl. An all-white jury acquitted Scholl, but the case illuminated for the presiding judge the issues around civil rights. That judge went on to dissent in a case that upheld school segregation, and his dissenting opinion became the basis for the U.S. Supreme Court's majority ruling in the landmark Brown v. Board of Education case, which made racial segregation of schools illegal across the country. Then, in 1948, Truman issued the executive order desegregating the U.S. armed forces. For their service in World War II, seven black men were awarded the Medal of Honor. 52 years after the war ended, only one, Vernon Baker, was still alive in 1997 to receive the nation's highest tribute. According to press accounts at the time, tears streamed down Baker's face as President Bill Clinton hung the medal around his neck a half century after he single-handedly destroyed two German machine gun nests. Also at the ceremony was Captain David Williams, the white commander of the now-famed A Company 761st Tank Battalion. Williams fought through numerous Army denials for Staff Sergeant Reuben Rivers to receive the Medal of Honor. Rivers was killed in combat November 19, 1944. Williams told the American Forces Press Service in 1997 that fighting to get Rivers the recognition he deserved was one of the toughest battles he'd ever waged. With the Germans, I knew my enemy, he said, but racism is a hard enemy to defeat. A Voice for Reconciliation Defeating racism, or at least firing a few salvos in the war against it, was a goal of the Walter Springs Memorial Scholarship. By 1952, Don Christopher had graduated from Regis, married, and was living in Casper, Wyoming with his wife and daughter and working for the Continental Oil Company. The United States was basking in the pride of victory and the promise of unparalleled prosperity. Christopher could have simply gone on with his life. Instead, he decided to honor his former teammate. So he sent a check for $50 to Regis with a letter that read, in part, The enclosed is donated to Regis to honor Walter Springs, a classmate of mine and a boy I much admired for his sportsmanship and spirit of fair play. Walt loved Regis and all that it stands for, and few of us really knew or realized the great sacrifices he made. Christopher and the classmates who joined in the effort envisioned two annual scholarships, one for a black student, one for a white in those pre-civil rights era days, a scholarship promoting racial harmony was a novel enough idea that it made national news. It also won support from a number of celebrities of the day. Louis Armstrong dropped by Regis with a donation to the fund during a visit to Denver. So did actor Pat O'Brien, best known for playing the title football hero in Newt Rockney All-American. O'Brien also was a pal of then Regis President Reverend Raphael C. McCarthy, S.J., in 1953, New York Giants Hank Thompson, Monty Irvin, and Don Mueller pledged $1 for every home run they hit that season, netting the scholarship a cool $91. Irvin heard about the scholarship while recuperating in Denver after breaking his ankle. Before heading back to the polo grounds, he presented Regis with one of his high-top shoes filled with $93. silver dollars. No records could be located in the Regis archives showing what became of the scholarship effort or that any money was ever dispersed in Spring's name. But Walter Spring's name is listed alongside all the Regis students who died serving their country in World War II on a plaque that hangs in Main Hall. Orville Springs earned the college degree his uncle didn't get to finish, then earned a master's degree in journalism at Columbia University. After a career writing for the San Francisco Examiner, he's back in his hometown of Denver, surrounded by his son and grandson, Springs' cousins, nieces, and nephews, and family photos dating back nearly to the time William Springs came to Colorado hunting for gold. Orville is grateful that at Regis, his Uncle Walter's life, once again, will
0: serve as an inspiration. College Counselor Viviana de la Torre smooths the path for other first generation students. Story by Meredith Sell, read by Marcus Kenodel.
2: Viviana de la Torre's freshman year at Regis was challenging. Between questioning her major and juggling school with a job as a certified nursing assistant, de la Torre, who goes by Vivi, also experienced culture shock as a Latina on a majority white campus and a first-generation college student navigating the university on her own. Acclimating to college was a big struggle, De La Torre said. I had several conversations with my parents about wanting to transfer out. But she was willing to give Regis another shot, and two key shifts her sophomore year helped. First, she switched her major. Second, toward the end of her freshman year, De La Torre landed a job with Regis's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusive Excellence, working as a student lead for Stephanie Calunga Montoya, the office's associate director. There, she helped Montoya establish programs to help first-generation students avoid some of the struggles she experienced her freshman year. This year, De La Torre's senior year, the programs are especially important at Regis because first-generation students make up about one-third of the incoming freshman class. We, first-generation students, don't really have parents who helped us fill out F.A., F.S.A., or parents that knew what steps I needed to do to apply, De La Torre said. Everything that I had to do to get to my seat in that classroom, I had to figure out on my own or with the help of college counselors or professors. Through programming put on by the Diversity Office, as well as One Leads, a student-led club that De La Torre helped start last spring, she and others aim to provide first-generation students with the resources to navigate college and the space to share experiences, build relationships with other first-generation students, and connect with a campus counselor, all things that would have improved her own freshman year experience. Part of her freshman year struggle stemmed from her initial choice of major, De La Torre had chosen pre-nursing with the goal of eventually working as a prison nurse, but mostly she wanted to work in the prison system or with former prisoners. Her first year, she realized she didn't enjoy her science classes, but relished intro to sociology as well as the teaching of Jasmine A. Murrow, Ph.D., assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology, Sociology, and Criminal Justice. I really wanted Murrow to be my advisor, so I ended up switching to sociology, De La Torre said, De La Torre found Murrow, also Latina, to be someone she could relate to. She held me to higher expectations, De La Torre said, because she saw in me something more than I knew I was capable of. Under Murrow's guidance, De La Torre settled on a major in sociology and peace and justice with a minor in criminal justice as a way of pursuing her career path. Now in her final year at Regis, De La Torre is a deputy probation officer for Jefferson County, just outside Denver. She enjoys the job, but she's also struck by the complexity of circumstances that have led her clients to commit crimes. I feel like my classes have really opened my mind to seeing that not everything is black and white, she said. There's a lot of background information and a lot of other struggles that people go through. This understanding stirs up compassion as well as a desire to provide support to people who may otherwise be entirely on their own, a theme that's also at play in De La Torre's work with the Diversity Office. Not everyone has access to resources, and not everyone knows of the resources available to them, De La Torre said. I love the idea that I get to be the person that helps someone achieve all the goals and all the dreams they
0: have. Vive Regis, Long Lost Songs of Regis, Story by Todd Cohen, read by Marcus Kenodel
2: First came the drinking song, which naturally evolved into the college fight song when any kind of competition from academic to athletic was added into the mix. From the late 19th century through their heyday in the 1930s and 40s, college songs flourished. Arguably the best known is Notre Dame's Victory March, but Regis College as Regis was known then was in the mix. Regis had a victory song, a marching song, and a tune called We're Rooting for You, Brown and Gold. In 1931, two more were added, Alloho Regis Men, written by Regis Italian-born music director, Rev. Andrew DiMaccino, S.J. He, and renowned accounting teacher, Rev. Joseph A. Ryan, S.J., produced an alma mater called Viva Regis. This last anthem was included in a 1938 compilation of Everybody's Favorite Songs of the American College, alongside Ivy League's colleges and big state universities like Wisconsin and Pitt. The student newspaper opined, This song is a real alma mater tune written in a spirited, majestic style. The lyrics, says Regis alumnus and former professor Dennis Gallagher, appear to have been influenced by the Jesuit poet Gerard Manley Hopkins, S.J. Those tunes seem to have faded as the decades passed and new students had their own ideas. Joseph M. Fanginello, a 1963 graduate, does not remember the songs from the 1930s, but does recall frequently singing with his co-workers for Sega Food Service in the student center, serving meals to boarding students. Sometimes they closed the meals with a rendition of the national anthem, but not always. As part of our tomfoolery, we composed a school song, he recalled. At the end of each meal session, several of us stood, at attention, at the door at the end of the food line, in our white aprons with white paper hats in our hands, and sang our composition, Regis Regis College, Regis Regis School Song, on the crest of the West, and then we slammed the door. Recently, Loretta Notareschi, professor of music, led a composition seminar focused on college songs and seven students, all of whom have now graduated, wrote and composed five anthems to rally the Regis faithful. You can listen to a recording of Viva Regis and Five Student Songs at regis.edu forward slash songs. Queen
3: of the Western Hills so Turn here
0: Music by Teresa Crane, collaborative pianist in the music program with Marcus Canodal on Vocals. Trials, Treatment, and Triumph. Cancer couldn't stop a determined mom from achieving her dream. Story by Matt K. Johnson, read by Marcus Canodal.
2: On the Florida coast, thousands of miles from Denver, Angelica Masonette's mind was made up. I don't want to live in this world without finishing my degree, she remembers saying. But for Masonette, earning her master's in health services administration would mean more than studying and working hard. In November 2019, months before she was to complete her online degree, Masonette was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. It was devastating news for the young mother. You're not prepared for any of this. I think it was the thinking that I could not see my daughter grow. Another realization. For Masonette to finish her degree in English a language she was still learning, she'd have to attend online classes while working, raising a young daughter, and enduring debilitating chemotherapy treatments. But even cancer didn't stand much of a chance against a woman who had already survived much, including a devastating hurricane that killed thousands and upended her life in Puerto Rico just months before she started her Regis degree. A day after her final chemo treatment last summer, with her Regis degree in hand, Masonette realized she had followed through on a promise she made years ago. My father told me one time, You're not going to be anything. You're going to be a mother with six kids living in government residential. Or even, you're going to be like your mother and me, drug addicts. I tell him, no, I'm going to prove to you that that's not who I am. Life-changing upheaval In September 2017, Masonette, her husband and daughter, were living in San Juan, Puerto Rico, when the most destructive hurricane to hit the island in 80 years tore through. Hurricane Maria decimated the U.S. territory, led to the death of thousands, and knocked out power across the entire island for months. In the immediate aftermath, Masonette and her young family did what other San Juan residents did. They drove to one end of the island's main highways, which she remembers as the only place where cell reception was still available. She stood on the top of her car to call her sister in the United States, letting her know that she and her family were okay. Her sister offered her a lifeline to come to the mainland and live in her spare bedroom in Tampa, Florida. Able to pack only some clothes and forced to leave the rest of their belongings behind, Maisonette and her family came to Florida as little more than refugees. We lived in a queen-size bed, three of us, for four months, without a car, without anything, only believing that tomorrow is going to be a better day. During that time, Maisonette, who had been working in healthcare care consulting in Puerto Rico, got a new job in the same field at a company that would let her work remotely and stay in Florida, She and her husband eventually saved enough money to rent their own place, and she decided it was time to take the next step toward her dream, a master's degree. She researched online master's degree in health services administration and decided she wasn't going to settle for anything but the best if she could afford it. The program at the top of her list? Regis. I have the University of South Florida like 20 minutes from my home. I was not going to do a program there. I'm going to do it with Regis. Fighting past the fear of starting a degree program as a non-native English speaker, Masonette found solace in Regis professors, whom she found to be understanding, kind, and flexible. Regis gave me the opportunity to handle my personal life, but at the same time, this university gave me the opportunity to do my degree at the same time with no stress. You don't find universities that do that most of the time. A full life interrupted. Even while working and raising her daughter, Masonette successfully made it to within a few months of finishing her degree in late 2019. Then she began to have ongoing stomach problems so severe that she was vomiting and could hardly eat. When she went to the hospital, test results showed abnormally high calcium levels in her blood. The doctor told me, I don't know how you are walking as opposed to you are in a coma right now. I said, I don't know. I drive here. Scans revealed a gigantic mass in her left ovary that was pushing on her intestines. It was ovarian cancer, an aggressive form of the disease, but it was caught early in stage one. Still, by the end of November, she found herself in chemotherapy treatments every three weeks. You think you are invincible. You are powerful. You are young. I am 32 years old. I am at the peak of my life, I think. Professionally. Personally. Everything. I am trying to accomplish the American dream right now, and then you have to stop all your dreams and everything. Initially, the cancer diagnosis forced her to put off finishing the Regis degree that was tantalizingly close. She also had to use vacation, sick time, and family medical leave to take a month off work. But by Christmas, she became determined to start her life again and to finish her degree, no matter how difficult it would be while undergoing chemotherapy and earning a paycheck. That's something I said to my husband. I don't want to live in this world without ending my degree. I want to end it. That's why I'm receiving my treatment and at the same time doing my degree and working. For the final months of her degree, from February through April 2020, she had to adjust the rhythm of her life, work, and schoolwork to accommodate her chemo treatments. Studying and writing papers in the first weeks after treatment was especially tough, Masonette said. It's a fight inside you. Your mind is telling you, you can do it. You can sit there and write 10 pages, but your body is telling you, no, no, no. You have to go to bed. So she created a system. She attended virtual classes and studied as much as she could when she had energy, and she remained in close contact with professors who offered flexibility when she needed it. She didn't give up her goal, said Melanie Smith, adjunct professor in the Rookert-Hartman College for Health Professions, Masonette's instructor, during her treatment, and she asked for help, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do. Masonette also benefited from the support of her husband and daughter, who helped her through every day when others couldn't be with her in person due to the COVID-19 pandemic. My husband is my soulmate. He's like my balance in this life. I could give up easily if I didn't have him. And when I feel like I could not have any strength at all, my daughter would just give me a kiss and tell me, Mommy, I love you. New Beginnings In late spring, just as she was about to graduate, Masonette heard the best possible news. Her cancer was in remission. On Friday, May 22nd, she went alone for her final treatment. Due to COVID-19 restrictions, her husband wasn't permitted to join her and celebrated with hospital staff. She walked out of the hospital to a surprise. Her husband with a new car and a sign that read in large print, Keep calm. It's my last chemo today. The next day, Masonette's Regis diploma arrived in the mail. Her family celebrated with a graduation party, including a cap and gown, a cake, banners, and photos. We cried a lot because it was like teamwork, she said. Since her graduation, Masonette and her family have bought a house in Tampa, and she says her Regis degree likely will help her earn a promotion within her company. She hopes to pursue a doctorate degree someday, at Regis if possible, since it's the only universities she trusts. I think it's a blessing to study in Regis. I could accomplish my professional dreams and get my master's degree, but at the same time, I could live my life. I could enjoy more of my family, my daughter growing up, my life right now. I'm blessed for my life.
0: Hall of Fame, Joe B. Hall built a legendary career on a Regis foundation. Story by Matt K. Johnson, read by Marcus Knudel.
2: Before he was a Hall of Fame basketball coach, before he won a national championship at the University of Kentucky, before he took on the seemingly impossible task of filling the coaching shoes of the legendary Adolph Rupp, Joe B. Hall cleaned the Regis swimming pool. He also taught physical education classes coached baseball, served as athletic director, and somehow found time to coach the men's basketball team. In that last job, the one he'd been hired to do, Hall laid the foundation for a career that would rank him among the best college basketball coaches of all time. In five seasons at Regis, from 1959 to 1964, he built a team that could hold its own against some of the biggest names in college basketball and even scored an upset over Oklahoma State, ranked number four in the nation at that time. His success was Regis' loss. By 1965, Hall was back at the University of Kentucky, an assistant to Rupp, his own former coach. Now, 91, a legend in his own right and a Hall of Famer, the one-time Regis head coach has shared the story of his success in a new book, Coach Hall, My Life on and Off the Court, written with Marianne Walker. Hall was born in 1928 in Cynthiana, Kentucky, a little town in the heart of basketball country, 30 miles north of UK's Lexington home. In his book, Hall recounts that his parents hadn't chosen a name for him, so the doctor who attended the birth christened him Joe Beesman, after a man the physician admired, but who Hall never met. When he was nine or ten, Hall recalled, his grandmother pulled him aside and told him the name Joe Hall was too short and too plain. Let's add your middle initial to make it more interesting. From now on, you say your name is Joe B. Not just Joe, it's Joe B. Hall. Not one to disobey his grandmother, Hall was, from then on, Joe B., In the Depression years of his childhood, Hall's father worked as a mechanic and a welder. He took any job he could find, Hall wrote. At the same time, Charles Bill Hall passed along his values of God, family, hard work, fair play, and discipline of mind and body. Hard work and discipline surely helped Hall earn a scholarship and a spot on the same University of Kentucky basketball squad he had grown up admiring. UK was, even then, a storied program with a marquee coach, Adolph Rupp. The program's status both thrilled and frustrated Hall. With so many terrific players, his own time on the court was limited. After a couple seasons, and with Rupp's blessing, Hall transferred to the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, where he became a leading scorer despite holding down four jobs to cover his college costs. From peddling pickles in Kentucky to coaching in Colorado. In the summer of 1951, Hall was part of a college all-star team that toured 14 European and African nations playing 56 games in 58 days. He came home exhausted, left college and basketball, and went to work selling ketchup and pickles for the H.J. Heinz Company. It wasn't long before he met and married Catherine Dennis, then figured out that selling condiments wasn't his calling, but coaching was. After finishing his degree at U.K., Hall took a job coaching basketball and football at a small high school in a small town, Shepherdsville, Kentucky. By 1959, Hall was ready to move on. He and Catherine, who was by then pregnant with their third child, packed up the family and pulled a U-Haul to Colorado, where Hall had taken a job coaching basketball, along with a myriad of other duties, at Regis. Here, Hall recruited some of the best players ever to wear Rangers uniform, including standout stars Lewis Stout, James Ray Jones, and Kozel Walker. He also provided his players with some of the best competition ever faced by Ranger teams in any sport. It was my theory that if I recruited well and built a good competitive schedule, That we could grow our program in a positive direction, Hall said. And that's what we did. We added Division I teams to our schedule and we played some of the top teams in the nation. Hall's Rangers defeated the likes of Arizona, Colorado State, Oklahoma State, the University of Denver, and the Air Force Academy. Hall even managed to schedule trips for Regis to play in overseas tournaments. Hall excelled at what was then Regis College while not only fulfilling his many duties, but also earning his master's degree at Northern Colorado State College, now the University of Northern Colorado. He also faced adversity common to coaches at small schools at the time. Upon his arrival at Regis College, he found a weak and disheartened team, a definite lack of school spirit, and a large amount of opposition from the press media here in Denver, according to an article from the former Regis student newspaper, The Brown and Gold. Realizing that he was faced with a monumental task and that his personal future would depend on the outcome, Joe B. Hall worked hard to bring talent to Regis. He felt that once he had made the right team, the reputation would necessarily follow. And he was right. Hall had a few advantages in recruiting players to Regis. We built a new gym when I was there. We had the best uniforms and equipment than anybody had, he said in a recent interview. We had a great recruiting base. The mountains, the skiing, the clear weather. It was a beautiful setting for families to come and see what we had to offer. Another bonus was being able to entice student-athletes with a Jesuit education at a school that was small but offered big-time athletic and academic opportunities. The Jesuits were the perfect atmosphere for those young boys, he said. They were tough and they were honorable. The Jesuit group, in my estimation, are the finest educators at any level, in any field, in the whole world. Hall realized that Denver's high altitude would require a new diet and workout regimen. In such an environment, with less oxygen, I had the boys eat foods high in potassium and drink lots of water, Hall wrote in his book, Coach Hall. They became superbly conditioned with running and weightlifting. While many of the teams that came to Denver to play us would fade in the second half, my team remained strong. Courting Success in the National Spotlight one of Hall's most impressive victories, knocking off number 4-ranked Oklahoma State, earned him a congratulatory telegram from Rupp. That turned out to be a sign of things to come. It wasn't long before Hall was back at Rupp's side, landing a job as assistant coach in 1965. When Rupp retired in 1972, Hall found himself in the unenviable position of taking over head coaching duties for one of the most successful figures in the sports history, the man whose name is now on the arena where Kentucky plays its home games. I've long said that few coaches in our game have ever had as difficult of a task as what Coach Hall faced at Kentucky, current Kentucky head coach John Calipari wrote in a review of Hall's book. To follow a legend like Coach Rupp is incredibly tough. Coach Hall not only continued the tradition of winning and excellence, he did it with grace and humility, Calipari wrote. The pressure to succeed and to maintain Kentucky's status among the country's preeminent basketball programs was enormous, but succeed Hall did. Over his 13 years at Kentucky, the Wildcats won nearly two-thirds of their games and claimed eight Southeastern Conference regular season championships. During his tenure... It was a rare NCAA tournament that didn't include Kentucky, and he led the Wildcats to three Final Four appearances. In 1978, Hall's Wildcats won the national championship with a 94-88 victory over Duke. Hall accomplished this while also gaining attention for bringing the first black players to the UK program. He also hired the team's first black assistant coach, Leonard Hamilton, who went on to coach at multiple Division I programs and in the NBA. Some people wanted me to win with all white players, but it didn't matter to me, Hall told Calipari in an episode of Kentucky Wildcats TV's Legend to Legend. Every team I had had African-American players, and they were good kids. They were some of my best citizens, my hardest workers, my most dedicated. Preserving Memories While Collecting Honors His Kentucky success may have put Hall in the national spotlight, but his connections with Regis remained. In 1985, the NCAA Tournament West Regionals were held in Denver in the old McNichols Arena, and Hall brought his team to his former stomping grounds at Regis. I enjoyed returning there, he wrote, in Coach Hall. I took the team to the small gym at Regis to practice. It was so good to see that many of the teachers and the Jesuit priests I knew were still there, and they welcomed me with open arms. That visit was a highlight for me. After knocking off higher-ranked University of Washington and the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, the Wildcats faced top-seeded St. John's in the Sweet 16 and lost. For Kentucky, it was the end of the season. For Hall, it was the end of his Kentucky career. Following the game, Hall announced his retirement. I started my coaching career in Denver, and I finished it there, he told the Denver Post in 2012. He finished that career with a stellar record at Kentucky. 297 wins, 100 losses. Around Lexington and Denver, Coach Hall may be retired, but he isn't forgotten. A bronze likeness of him sits on a bench on the UK campus in Lexington. In 2012, he was inducted into the National Collegiate Hall of Fame. In 2017, Hall went home to Cynthiana as a guest of honor when the town unveiled a 35-foot mural of him on Main Street. Since his retirement, Hall has been a fixture at Kentucky sporting events, from NASCAR races to high school football games and, of course, UK basketball games. But by 2019, in his 91st year, He had to cut back, something that didn't sit well with the former coach. It's tough on him, one of Hall's sons-in-law, Rick Derrickson, told the Lexington Herald leader. He likes to get out there, and he's a people guy. A bad ankle hobbles his ability to get around. The ankle I dunked off of has gone bad on me, Hall joked. So he relies on a cane or a walker. But when police met him outside Rupp Arena with a wheelchair and rolled him into a UK game during the 2019 regular season, Hall wasn't happy. I prefer to get around with my cane, he told the Herald leader. The wheelchair, he said, is degrading. It's undignified. I just don't like it. Earlier this year, Calipari made headlines for advocating that Hall be enshrined into the prestigious Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. If Calipari's appeal is successful, Hall will join an elite group of 105 men's and women's college and professional coaches that includes John Wooden, John Thompson, Mike Krzyzewski, and Adolf Rupp and Calipari himself. Regardless of whether he joins that group, Hall's legacy remains strong nationwide and at Regis. Joe B. Hall, out here, people still remember, said 38-year Regis men's basketball coach Lonnie Porter, who followed 13 years after Hall. To Hall, the memories of his time at Regis will always be intertwined with the values he tried to instill in his players. I tried to carry on a program that was evidence of a Christian education. I think our goal was to teach our young men to be extremely competitive and to play tough, hard-nosed defense, and we would be proud of our wins and respectful of our opponents when we lost. We never lost our composure. We never lost our edge. And we always represented Regis College in a positive way.
0: Our final piece this episode is our Ask Reggie column, Light at the End of the Foxhole, as written by our university mascot, Reggie, and voiced by one of our friendly campus squirrels.
4: The campus has been a bit on the empty side lately, but not to worry, Mouseketeers. While the kids are away, the animals will play. So in this issue, we turn to my fellow fine-furried friends for their input. So, Rabbit stops me in the quad the other day. Hey, Reg, what do you call a hundred rabbits walking backward? I'm like... Sorry dude, I got, I got nothing A receding hairline So a few minutes later When he stopped laughing hysterically at his own joke I ate him Just kidding, he's cool Besides, I had a donut earlier Then he says, seriously Reggie How do you keep your sanity During the colder, dormant And likely home sheltering season His question Sent me swirling down a rabbit hole of thought I live my life chasing after the next shiny, fast-moving thing, and basically going where the wind blows. But recently, I've been forced to consider this whole COVID-19 thing, the mask thing, the isolation thing, the economic thing, the political thing, the equality, climate change, wildfires things, and my thing list is getting crazy overwhelming and downright negative sometimes. So what about the love thing and caring for others thing? Why isn't that on everyone's minds? It seems like we're kind of forgetting some biggies. Let me say this. It's easy to get a bit down, but I'm told that struggles can be a part of healthy animal growth. I also carry a secret remedy with me, and it's simple. Drumroll, please. I just focus on how I choose to look at things. Ta-da! Sounds nutty, but when I think about it, nearly everything emotion-wise is under my control. Seriously. My feelings are all in my own furry melon, and I decide how I wish to deal with it. Seeing the brighter side, seeing the beauty, seeing the love, or choosing to see those things. When my heart overflows with best case scenarios, releasing all those positive and dolphins inside me, there is no room left for the downers. If you struggle with training yourself to see things in a positive light, start by distancing yourself from negativity. You may end up having to bury yourself deep in a foxhole so you can't hear it anymore. But let me tell you, foxholes can be amazingly comfortable, especially if you get creative with some fresh interior design. I just hung fish bones over my mantle. Way cool. Anyway, um, where was I? Uh, okay, right, for fun. So, the weather is changing, flu season is coming, and most mammals are headed back into their dens for even more isolation. <laughs> well... I'm definitely going to find safe ways to keep living my life. I'm outdoors all day, staying safe, but active, and tossing down as many slow-moving rodents, I mean donuts, as possible. I just snagged a new Fox station for gaming, and I'm already halfway through Red Fox Redemption. I'm into Netflix for the Wild Animal Food Network, obviously. I've also been making some awesome Foxify playlists. My favorite indie band, Sleep Foxes, just released a new album, and now I've become totally obsessed with rediscovering other tasty classics like Real Big Fish, Modest Mouse, Snoop Dogg, uh, Stray Cats, and the Squirrel Nut Zippers. I'm even teaching myself four-toe guitar, so when we get to the other side of this pandemic, I'll drop my new skills on you around the campfire some evening. I also watch the Fox Network occasionally, but I'm totally bummed at the lack of foxes there. (laughs) Can I get a whoop-whoop? Social distance, virtual licks, and bear hugs to all my little cubs and human species. Stay safe, healthy, and optimistic, peace and love, Reggie.
0: Thank you for listening to the debut episode of The Quad Pod. You can view the full issue of this magazine online at regis.edu slash magazine. See images from the stories you've just heard, indulge in a bit of Regis nostalgia, Read more about the inspiring accomplishments of students, faculty, and alumni, as well as learn what's new and exciting on campus. Subscribe to the Quad Pod wherever you get your podcasts if you'd like future audio versions of the Regis University magazine to show up in your feed. Stay safe, be healthy, and we'll be back this summer.